Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Turn to Psalm, if you would, 141. I'm just going to give you a few nuggets from something I read. I'm going to give honor where honors due. I was reading some truths about worship from a, a book called uh, Worship the Lord, very simply. And there's several articles. There's like 15 articles in there from different major worship leaders around the world and people that, you know, Bill Johnson, all kinds of people. And one of the writers is Bishop Joseph Garlington, who pastors in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is, Joseph Garlington is a genius. But anyhow, he just shared some things that really struck me and because we do, we do put such measure we give, well, we believe so much in worship. We believe so much in what this really is about. I mean, the, the theme of the church, remember, is the music and the message and the mission. God told me all those years ago, if we'll get his music and be faithful with his message, you know, that he'll do miracles in our midst. And as Julie shared, she can't help the fact that she was around some of the, you know, the greatest bands that ever, still considered to be the greatest bands that have ever been around, the Beatles and the Stones. And uh, my own background was from an ugly side of it. But nevertheless, I was around a lot of professional musicians a lot because of my sad, horrible testimony in the old days. I mean, people, all, all the Jimi Hendrixes and Steve Stills and these guys like this. But music has always been at the core of, of our being because we know what music does. Julie often shares about how God spoke to her once when she was sitting in Brian Epstein's office and saw a piece of paper saying that the Beatles were number one in every nation in the world but three, something like that to that effect. And she was so struck by the fact how one song literally went around the world and changed the world. And we, anybody that knows who lived through that knows that the songs, the Beatles songs, it changed culture around the whole globe. Many nations wouldn't even allow at first the Beatles music in because they were concerned about the effect it would have on its generations, and of course it did. The thing is that they were prophesying and didn't know it. And a lot of those major groups in those days were prophesying and they didn't know it. The reason they were prophesying is because God's musicians weren't. There wasn't enough credence, there wasn't enough actual uh, understanding <clears throat> given to musicians at those times in church. Music was just something you did before the message. You know, you did three slow songs, three fast songs, let's get out of here before the roast burns kind of a thing. That's the attitude. You know what I mean? And people didn't really understand. I mean, you know, there's just too many verses. Like I said, we, we could do courses on courses on, on worship. but just things that we have to understand. Music, worship is always a supernatural force before it's anything that's just a physical event. Did you hear me? Real music is supernatural. There's something about it. And we could go back to Chronicles and we could see, like, again, Elijah, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. Remember, people came to him once and said, prophesy, tell us about this, that, and the other. And he said, you know, he said, the Lord hath hid this from me. And he said, bring me a minstrel. You get it. Some of us have heard that for years, but you really got to catch that afresh. Here's a absolute, without a doubt, you know, accredited, true prophet. I mean, a real prophet. What he said came to pass. God used him mightily, the miracles that happened in Elijah's ministry. And yet people today, they think you can just turn on some of the gifts of the Spirit. But he, being the major prophet that he was, wasn't, he said, I didn't hear, I don't know what the Lord is saying here. And so his solution to that is he said, bring me a minstrel. Bring a musician. 
And the next verse says, As the minstrel played, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he began to prophesy. Something happens when you get that together, when you get a man of God, a minister, who understands the depth and the strength of what real worship is supposed to produce, and the synergy begins to happen between, where you have musicians that understand the pastoral role, and you have pastors that understand the worship role. And you get those things together because something happens that creates, as it were, an open door. It's like a portal to heaven. Things happen when you get those two things together. And this is why God is really speaking so loudly across the earth right now about worship, teaching about the difference between priestly worship, prophetic worship, apostolic worship. Priestly worship is something where we simply declare the goodness of God. And like some of the first songs we were doing today was priestly worship where you're declaring that. Prophetic worship is when the the word of the Lord begins to come and they begin to get fresh songs and things and God is beginning to speak things and carry his will and voice into the atmosphere by virtue of that. Apostolic is when it gets so strong that declarations begin to come from the worship team that really became city-shaking. I mean, really, they can shake cities. Now, the problem with that, when we say things like that, people don't really have a great belief system for it because particularly in the West here, we have very little revelation of the fact that there are two realms, the seen realm and the unseen realm. When I teach on the things of the Spirit, I often tell people that one of the gifts of the Spirit is called discerning of spirits. And that's not where, you know, a lot of churches say, well, that means I can discern something about you. Like I look at you right now, Ayana, and I'm discerning that you went out and messed around last night and went to 15 clubs, went dancing, no, that's a spirit of suspicion. <laughs> that's, that's not discerning of spirits. God, and here's what I always share. Many of you that are members heard me say this 100,000 times, but you get to hear it again. Remember, God is a spirit, right? John 4, God is a spirit. We're going to go through those familiar verses in just a second. He's a spirit. We've been created in his image. We. Remember, the real you, the real you is that spirit that lives on the inside of you. You live in that body. That body is a tabernacle. The Bible calls it a temple of the Holy Ghost or a tabernacle. And then you have a mind or a soul. The definition of the words mind, it speaks of the sentiment, the emotional element where we think, speak, and whatever, and and, uh, what's the word, conjure from the soul. So we're spirit, we're soul, and we're, we're body. But most of us only think about here. We only think that reality is right here. This is reality. This this is reality, you know, whatever. But the realm of the spirit, God's a spirit, that realm created this realm. You have to really catch that. That's where everything's real. I said, that's where everything's real. So the illustration I always use, if the true gift of discerning the spirits went into operation right now, literally right above our head, if somehow we could just unzip the atmosphere and pull it back, you would see reality. If you could look into the spirit realm, remember that's the parent realm. God was first. How many of you agree possibly God was first? Well, he was. Just trust me. I'd never lie to you. The spirit realm was first. That realm created this. We're the cartoon. He's the creator. And you open this thing up, and if you could look into there, if that actual spiritual gift went into operation, you would see right above our heads right now 
an atmosphere that was teeming with tens of thousands of spiritual beings. Hallelujah. A whole lot more good here than evil, but believe me, this whole world is surrounded in darkness. This is why God's churches are supposed to be the light. But nevertheless, that's the issue. The spirit realm is more real than this realm is what I'm trying to say. It just is. But the Western world doesn't really, they don't have a handle on that at all. But you don't have to, like friends of mine, like the few, one time, I only ministered in Africa one time in Lagos. But uh, so many of my friends that are ministered in India around and, and uh, some places in the jungles of South America and in Africa, for that matter, even in the Middle East, you do not have to tell those people, you don't have to try to convince them that there's a supernatural realm. You don't have to convince them that there's a spirit realm, that there's an unseen realm. They live with it. They've had experiences with it. They're witch doctors and all kinds of stuff. I could tell you stories right now that would fry your brain, literally, that you would flat out say I was lying. I could tell you stories about a person turning into a cat right in front of you. A person turning right into a cat. Right, I could tell you stories about that. And I know and people just love it. They love to hear all the stuff. They go, oh, that's heavy stuff, man. That's really weird. But nothing. They say, well, but that stuff happens in these other nations. The realm of the spirit is where everything's real. Now, I've got you all freaked out about that. <laughs> Worship. I want you to see something. And let, let me just read the verse real quick. Again, this is regarding Psalm 141.2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version here, unusually, but it'll be up there on the Amplified. It says, let my prayer be counted. Now, this is David, the psalmist, praying. He said, let my prayer be counted as incense. The actual article this guy wrote, he called it, the title of it was the as, as, the as of worship. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, the word as is simply an adverb. An adverb conveys equivalency. This word as, it says the actual definition is a word that conveys equivalency or equality. So in the psalm above, David's saying, sharing with us that physical actions can become spiritual realities. He says, let my prayer be counted as incense and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, what you have to understand is that David, you know, is the one person in Scripture that's called the, the you know, the, the man after God's own heart. He's the one person that's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David is facing two very real needs here in his life historically. If you, historically, this is back when he's running from King Saul, who's trying to kill him at every turn. And the verse that connects to this is 1 Samuel 23, where David tells Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. So number one, David has a need to survive. He's out here in the desert, running away from Saul, trying to stay alive. Having Jonathan, Saul's son, try to help him. And he says, I have this one priority. I'm, I'm doing my best to stay, to stay alive and to survive. Here's the thing, the amazing thing about David. The other thing about David is, regardless of his situation, he has this desire to worship the king. He has this desire, no matter where he is, no matter what he's doing, to worship God. But he's got a problem. He's nowhere near the altar. There's only one altar they worshipped at at that time. If he was near an altar, he doesn't have a lamb. He's got no incense. Of course, incense could only be burned by the priest. 
and he's in trouble. He doesn't have any of that there. And so this, his heart, if, if you see what, let me just read here. So David makes, humbly makes this request of God that reveals a principle of worship which has been established now for millennia and has become the basis for worship for us today. David asks God to accept his current situation, his current predicament, his inability to worship at the altar, and allow him to offer a substitute that would have equal value. He said, let my, let my prayer be counted as incense. Let this prayer be counted as incense. Let the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. Now, today we lift our hands in most churches that are considered to be charismatic or, or, or Pentecostal like ourselves. We lift our hands. And some people just do it out of rote. They do it because they see others do it. But it's very symbolic. It has a real deep spiritual meaning. There's a few meanings to it. But the main meaning, and what David's referring to here in this passage, is when, you know, every family had to take a lamb. Every family had to bring a lamb and bring it to the high priest in those days and bring it to the temple. But what they did is they brought that lamb and they put it in their hands before they gave it to the priest and they lifted it up. They lifted that lamb straight up in the air as the sacrifice that they were bringing to God before they handed it to the priest. So David's saying, I have no lamb, but I'm asking you to accept my heart. I'm lifting my heart up. We'll see that in Lamentations. It says that we lift our heart before him. But again, what we're trying to get at real quickly, like I said, I've already belabored too much time on some other things. Physical movements, physical things have spiritual reality. When God sees us like today, we're blessed with the team that we have. But when God sees us, like the first few songs, we were really praising him. Then a few other songs, we began to worship him. But the thing is, when we lift our hands, you see, God wants us to get to a place where we understand there's spiritual reality to that. When you lift your hands before him, you need to see yourself lifting your heart and saying, God, here I am. I bring this to you. And even your prayers. Now, I, I need to keep reading because we've got some other things to get to. As I already said, worship is first and foremost a supernatural experience. It can only be entered into by faith. Uh, again, do you think David felt like worshiping when he was out there and Saul was trying to kill him? He didn't feel like it, but he had something burning in him and said, I've got to worship. I want to worship God. I don't have any of the accoutrements to worship, so please accept this prayer as incense. Because again, that's all they grew up with. You know, you had to have the, you had to have these things in place. And accept the lifting of my hands. Accept the lifting of my hands as the let it be just like the evening sacrifice, like I brought a lamb to you. Now, similarly, there's something interesting about how the Jews thought, and you see this in, in John 4 when Jesus deals with the Samaritan woman. So John 4, starting in verse 19. I'll wait till they get that up, but they can get it up there so you can read it. John 4, 19, just a little truth to see here. The woman said to him, he just, well, I should have backed up, but that's all right. The woman said, remember the Samaritan comes up, Jesus says to her, give me water to drink. She said, I, well, the well is deep. I have no bucket to draw with. And he said, had you known who is before you, you would have asked, and he would have given you water, that living waters that lead unto everlasting life. Okay? And then he says, she said, well, Lord, you know, do this for me. And he says, no. He said, first, go get your husband and come back with him because that's the way they needed to minister because of men and women in those days. 
And she said, well, I have no husband. And the Lord says, you're right. You've actually had five husbands, and the dude you're living with now is not your husband. And so suddenly she turns to him and says, I perceive you're a prophet. Oh, well. Anyhow, the woman said to him, sir, I see and understand that you're a prophet. Our, now just, okay, let me just read it. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews, remember she was a Samaritan. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, and that was Mount Gerizim. But you Jews say that Jerusalem, which is Mount Zion, is where they worship. That Jerusalem is the place where it was necessary and proper to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither merely in this mountain nor merely in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not know what you are worshiping. You worship what you do not comprehend. But we do know what we're worshiping. We worship what we have knowledge of and understand. For after all, salvation comes from among the Jews. A time will come, however, indeed it is already here, when the true, genuine worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth or reality. For the Father is seeking such, excuse me, the Father is seeking just such people as these, as his worshipers. God is a spirit, a spiritual being, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the Samaritan woman thinks that worship has to do with a place. A place. To her, it was Mount Gerizim, because three years, three generations before Sanballat had built a temple there for the Samaritan people. And then she thought, but you Jews, you have a temple as well, and that's Mount Zion there. And she thinks it's a place. Worship has to do with a place. Jesus summarily dismisses both of those and says it has nothing to do with the place. He said, eh, but to a degree it does. He said, because the place that you're called to go is a place called the Spirit. And to truly worship God, we have to learn how to go to the Spirit. I I hope you don't think this is wrong, but it's like like going to Asda. (laughs) It's when you learn, when you've walked with the Lord long enough that you realize that it's this heart connection where suddenly you begin, something happens here where you're not concerned anymore with who's around you. I always remember, I tell the story, when I first got born again through the ministry teen challenge, I come into this room, there's these 60 young guys all coming from similar situations that I'd come from. And this guy is up there and a couple of guitar players start lifting, playing guitar and these guys start lifting their hands. And, you know, doing all this stuff and some of them talking in some strange words, strange language I'd never heard before in my life, you know. And me coming out of the penitentiary and coming out of prison life, you know, I looked at these dudes and said, these dudes are just flat out wacky. I mean, you know, if you, I'm, you know what, am I, what did I get in the middle of? You know what I mean? I got God saved me in the courtroom and sent me to Teen Challenge instead of back to prison. But now I'm around all these people and they're all going, and I'm, I feel the same way. And, you know, they're all waving their hands and I'm looking at them like, you know, you're, you're supposed to be men. Men don't wave their hands around. You know, whatever. Anyhow, that was my thought. I had no understanding. I didn't know that Jesus Christ could be made so real to you that in singing to him or singing of him could just transport you out of your flesh life or flesh understanding into a place where suddenly your heart just opens up and 
tears start to come and all kinds of other unmanly things begin to happen if you're a man. You're not supposed to weep. You're not supposed to cry. But something happens and you begin. All I know is when this does happen, it's the most liberating thing that you ever experience. I said it's the most liberating thing that you'll ever experience. Because suddenly, I'm telling you, you know what's of the Spirit because in those days, no one told you that lifting your hands up to God was like a sacrifice or that lifting your hand up was symbolic of lifting your heart up. You were touched by God and you just lifted your hands up. So tell me, when you guys, I know nobody in here likes football, right? I don't know if Cynthia's here today. Cynthia, you know, Des is here somewhere. I know, you know, they root consistently for Arsenal. We have to pray for Arsenal a lot. Hallelujah. But, you know, is, is it not true? I mean, it's a normal human reaction. When you get excited about something, how many of you guys in the stands go, ah! you know what I mean? You lift your hands, you go nuts, man, and you're going nuts about a little hunky piece of leather ball. You know what I mean? And you flip out, man. I mean, you flip out about stuff like that. And then you call us crazy when we come in here to worship the living God, and we go, ah! and Ag- I sort of call you Agnes again. I've got to quit that. You know, What's your name again? George. And Angela gets up and says, everything's going to be all right. I ain't got a fever. Everything's going to be all right. And, you know, and you're looking at her and go, this is church. I'm used to. You didn't know I was a professional singer, too, did you? I didn't think so. Yeah. No, nobody thought that. But what I mean is, it's the natural. There's something in us about going, yeah, like that. And there's something that happens when God really touches your heart. You find yourself going, I remember the first time, really seriously, I went, ah! And the next thing I did is I go, pulled down. I remember looking around going, oh my God, I hope nobody saw me. And then what happens is after you've, you've been with Christ and you've walked in church for years, quite frankly, sadly, it begins to become religious. You kind of lift your hands. The old joke is like that. You lift your hands now, but it's to do this. You know, when's this guy going to shut up and when's this going to finish so we can get out of here, man? I've got a roast to get to at home. Hallelujah. And it becomes just a religious thing that we do. But what I'm trying to say this morning, just in a short little bit, is like he said, is like Garlington said here, we have no idea in, in the Western world how God actually views some of these actions down here, that they're actually, they're actually connected to spiritual reality. One of the things I need to get to sooner rather than later, so if you give me, I'm just going to jump my other little page. I only have 17 more pages of notes. Shut the doors, please. <laughs> Hallelujah. This thing about, he said, let, my, well, let me read this verse before I go to these quotes. Um, John, in the book of Revelations, if you throw up Revelations 5, 8, if you would. Revelations chapter 5, verse 8. You know, again, David said, let my prayer be as incense. But listen to this verse. It's familiar to many of us. I'm waiting. If we could only get good help in the back. Oh, there you go. Kidding, John. Listen to this. He's in heaven. John's been lifted up into heaven. He says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders of the heavenly Sanhedrin, prostrated themselves before the Lamb. This is Jesus. Each of them, you got 28, four living beasts and the four and 20 elders. Each was holding a harp, a lute, or a guitar in one hand. 
And they had golden bowls full of incense, fragrant spices and gums of burning, which are the prayers of God's people, the saints. See, we don't understand. When we pray here, and you have good teaching on prayer and intercession, there are bowls in heaven. Heaven, like I said, is the real place. The spirit realm is where everything is real. I said the spirit realm is where everything is real. I mean, doing this, people used to think it was corny, but see, my hand is absolutely passing through angelic beings right now. Every single one of us have one at least, and normally two angels assigned to us. And most of them are drooping like this because angels are caught. In the Bible, it says the angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to the heirs of salvation of which we are. But it goes on when you study angels. Angels are strictly obedient to the word of God. And when we're consistently out of the will of God, we actually, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, we bind our angels where they're unable to do what they're actually anointed to do in our lives. See, and again, people hear that and they go, yeah, that's a bunch of rubbish, that's corny. Well, believe it if you want. And if you want to, that's fine because you'll never experience it. Hallelujah, because what you believe, you attract. One way or the other, it's the truth. What you believe, you empower. That's what the Bible teaches. Right or wrong. So if you believe in the opposite way, you empower it. But this stuff is real. And John in heaven sees that there are bowls in heaven and that David said, let my prayers be as incense. But John, when he's lifted in heaven, finds out prayers aren't just like incense. Somehow, some way, a transformation takes place. From here to there, they actually become the incense that's before Almighty God. But the thing is also, see the connection here. The four and twenty elders who forever throughout all eternity will worship God. Well, we all will. They have a guitar in one hand, and they've got a bowl of prayers in the other hand. And there's a whole gigantic message and a whole semester of teaching right there about the strength of music and prayer together. Why sometimes our music and worship, or even today, Angela, stepped into just a touch. It was just a different flow this morning. It was different even uh, last week. But just how sometimes you'll just begin, you'll stop in the middle of it, and you begin to pray. Because that's something that's supposed to be knitted together. Our musicians have to be more and more free in that to understand that's part and parcel of the calling. You're actually called as a worship leader or a worship or a vocalist in worship. That's what you should expect to be the case where God suddenly comes on you and you begin to pray. But also people who pray, you you can't, if I spent, when I, when I, you know, I got baptized like in pickle juice when it came to baptizing prayer when I first got saved, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours. I'm not exaggerating. I just spent hours and hours. So did Julie. We didn't even know each other, but we were just immersed. I couldn't stop praying. I just couldn't stop praying. I was so overwhelmed by the goodness of God and taking me out of the penitentiary and delivering me from heroin addiction and violent crime and all this kind of... I was just so overwhelmed that something... I, You know, only I knew how much I'd been set free from. You know, nobody can tell me but me. I'm the one that knows what I used to be like. I'm the one. I'm the one that lived the life. I'm the one that went to the... You know, I'm the one that was there. I experienced all the stuff I experienced, sadly. All the death and blood and guts. And to be delivered from that, you know, I just got so full. I just wanted to talk to God, man. I wanted to commune with God. I would just... That's why I'd 
just stay in the book of Psalms. I read the book of Psalms out loud over and over and over again because I just heard David's heart. I didn't understand it then, but the words were so good. They, you know, the words actually felt good in my mouth. I loved the words in my mouth. I loved the words coming out of my mouth. But even though I'm not a musician, I mean, I believe it or not, played trombone for six years, and I, but I've always had a musician's heart. You can't spend time in prayer, honestly, without coming out in some kind of a song. You just find yourself singing the scriptures. I mean, you do. And that's why it's so wonderful to have a private prayer life where nobody can hear you. And you don't, <laughs> and you don't freak out. But really, you can't not spend long to, I, I challenge you. You cannot spend quality, quality time in prayer alone without somehow, some way, you find yourself shifting from the flesh to the soul to the spirit. And once you get to the spirit, you're praying and you're, you're, you're in song. Because there's something about this. It's a heavenly rally. The harp or the guitar or the lute, a musician, an instrument here and prayers here. Prayer and music. Music and prayer. Prayer and music. Music and prayer. David somehow knew this and it's like he had an understanding before it was ever known today. He'd never been caught up in heaven, but he saw something. He saw that, God, I can't be near the altar. I can't be back there because Saul would kill me. So receive these prayers of mine right now as incense. Because, again, remember that whole culture, when they went, it was a whole gigantic pool of different rituals as they went to the to sacrifices and went every single day to the temple. They had to see these incense burn. The priests had to burn these certain kind of incenses. And like I said, in Offerings had to be brought, these lambs and what have you, every single day, every single day. But David's heart is just caught up. I am about, I, I'm one step between me and death, but you know what? I'm going to worship you no matter what. Let this, I don't have the right stuff, God, but I'm, I, I have only me. So let this prayer be like incense. In other words, let it be the reason I can enter into your holy place. Because the, the high priest had to go in with this incense. So let this prayer be like incense so I can get near you somehow. And let my lifted hands, let my lifted hands, let my lifted hands be just like the sacrifice. Let it be like a lamb. Please see a lamb in my hands. You know I don't have a lamb on here, but he just saw something. And you find out when you read it, like I said, God accepted it wholeheartedly. God saw that and he said, yeah, I accept it. Hallelujah. Anyhow, so it's really powerful. Now, Garlington wrote, if you can put up the first little page of this overhead, just the first one first. Garlington, this just one of the quotes. It says, much of what we do in worship has a greater hidden significance than we've yet to understand, primarily because we have embraced the visible practice without recognizing or acknowledging the hidden mystery that underlies the action. Today, we sing the phrase from the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring. However, in Lamentations 3.41, we read, Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto the God in the heavens. This indicates that I can bring something to God in my hands. And of course, much later in David's life, he acknowledged that when he said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In other words, he said the sacrifices today aren't you bringing a lamb, it's bringing your heart. It's bringing an honest and a transparent heart. See, at some point in your life, you find out you can't lie to God. Hallelujah. It's one of the most beautiful things on earth when you finally realize there's someone I can be absolutely nakedly transparent in front of, and I will never be condemned for it. 
He just wants this stuff out of my life. And so when I can talk to him honestly and just say, I, I feel like an idiot. I keep doing this. You know I hate it when I do it, but I keep doing it. And you begin, God loves that honesty. And see, one of the things you learn in things of the Spirit is, again, that sin goes out by way of the mouth. Confession. You confess stuff out of your life. In the name of Jesus, Father, forgive me for that. And you confess it out of your life, and it breaks the power of it reigning over you. Let me tell you, like I said, I was a heroin addict for many, many years. Unless you've actually, actually, actually been physically, I mean, I know what addiction is. I know what real addiction is. I mean addiction. I don't mean some play stuff and you've got a little desire. I mean where you can't sleep, you've got to have a fix, you wake up, blood's come. Forgive me. This is a church service. Isn't this wonderful? Baby dedication. Blood's coming out of your mouth. Little pieces of your stomach are coming out because you've got to fix because uh, your body's going into such incredible convulsions. I know what addiction is, where that thing is just in the neck, like they used to say, a monkey on your neck, that thing where, God, man, I mean, just this, oh, the anxiety, this stuff that would just build up, and you just want to go nuts, just get out of here. I know what that's like. That's real. And to think, like we're talking about here, where David comes, and he begins to share this stuff, that when God comes, he can absolutely, he can rip that stuff out of you in a New York second. I mean, I went into the Teen Challenge 100% hooked on heroin, expecting. I mean, I had gone through hard withdrawals once before, really, really badly in the county jail once. And like I said, I lost my stomach lining. It was not a pretty sight. I mean, you, you know, you can, you really, you die if, if you're really, if you have a really bad habit, which sadly I did because I was the guy that sold the stuff. I never had to worry about finding it because I was the guy that had it. So I was so hooked, it was unreal. So when I got this miracle work in the courtroom and I go to Teen Challenge, the first question they ask you is, uh, are you going to go through withdrawals? Are you still hooked or anything? And of course, you're scared to death to be sent anywhere, so you say, no, I'm not going to go through <laughs> withdrawals. And, but I knew, you know, about three days from now, I'm going to, it's not going to be nice, man. I know what to expect, and I don't want to bore you with some of the horrific details. But these two guys, uh, Jimmy Gonzalez and John Baster, come in, and another guy named Carl Austin, and they said, uh, we want to pray for you, man. They were all ex-heroin addicts. They were Christians then. And I said, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. And I'm just sitting in this room. I have no idea what's going on. And they started to pray for me. Father, you know, they prayed. I can't remember the prayer, but they just prayed. Father, deliver Rod, bless him, keep him, whatever. And this guy named Carl Austin was a guitar player. And he sat here, and he began to sing songs over me. He just began to sing old Andre Crouch songs over me and other music. And I sat there, and I kept feeling something, but I didn't know what I was feeling because I'd never felt it before. And then they just left, got up and left after about 45 They spent 45 minutes with me, just praying over me, laying hands on me, and I'm trying to be nice because I don't know what they're doing because I'm not used to this. I'm not used to people being nice to you. I'm used to, if you know, I'm used to if somebody's nice to you, they want something, and you better be ready to fight. Seriously, because that's what prison is. And anyhow, the next day goes by, I'm expecting to get sick. I mean, I'm expecting to get sick. Nothing happens. The second day goes by. I'm freaking out because I'm supposed to get sick. I know I'm supposed to get sick. Third day comes, and I mean, I just feel so good. I, I, you, you don't know unless you've been there. I felt so good. I couldn't, I, I didn't know what to think. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. Then they came on the fourth morning and said, you want to walk down the street about a mile? There's a bowling alley. We want to go bowling. You want to go bowling? you got to understand, 
<clears throat> three days after no fix, after you've been hooked for a couple of years, walk down a street, go bowling. No, that doesn't happen. But God had supernaturally delivered me. I mean, I was 100% free. I didn't go through one, God didn't go through one withdrawal. Well, that's the kind of stuff that makes you go, I, you know, I don't know about these guys lifting up their hands. They look weird. They're singing stuff that's corny to me. But something about this place is real. Something is, something's here that I sure can't explain. Because I know what I should be going through right now. And I know that uh, something has touched me. And I began to comprehend just ever so slightly there's something I don't see. There's an unseen realm that is far more powerful than the seen realm. And that these guys knew how to tap into the unseen realm and let it kind of ooze into the seen realm on rod. And see, this is part and parcel, again, when we really do enter, in, enter into worship. And this is why, again, I'm kind of sharing more, forgive me, visitors, but I mean, for our own body. You have to enter into worship by faith. This is why it's not about just singing the song. It's about hearing the truths so that we might actually worship him in the truth of what we're saying. And the truth of it begins to impact your heart so deeply that, again, you, you I'm telling you, worship is one of the places so many people get healed. And so many people really do get free. They don't need somebody to lay hands on them. They get free just because they finally give up their pride. Let me tell you, like I said, I know what it's like. You've got somebody on this side, somebody on that side. Oh, my God, if I close my eyes, what are they going to think about me? I mean, it's the corny stuff. Today we laugh about it. But then, in those days, let's face it, the fear of man is a killer. The fear of what somebody else is going to think. Listen, I guarantee you this right now. If I've ever learned anything in my life, you will never get free from anything if you're always worried about what somebody else thinks. At some point, you have to man up or woman up. And you have to make a choice for yourself and say, you know what? I want to be free, so I really don't give a rip what anybody else thinks. I'm going to do what it takes to get free. Because our God will set you free from anything. Anything. All you have to do is get involved in the plan. And it happens. Hallelujah. It happens. Oh, well, there's 27 other things I was going to talk about. Um, the same truth about something in their physical realm taking place. Actually, I'm not going to take any more time to do that. I was going to talk about there's another truth in Numbers 18, 25 through 27, even regarding your tithes where God speaks and he tells Moses, tell the people, the, the priests, remember the people tithe to the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, the Levite, the tribe of Levi was the priests that their job was to the maintenance of the service of the tabernacle, God's temple. Or like the house here, our ministry helps in the church. You know, they deal with the service of the tabernacle. But as a Levite, you lived. They had no inheritance. Everybody else could own, every all the other tribes of people could own houses. They could own lands. They could own material things, cattle. Levites couldn't own anything because their inheritance was the Lord. The Lord said, I am your inheritance. But the way the Levites lived, they lived off of the tithes. So they brought the lambs to the priests. Then God gave the priest the right to take, it literally says, the best of that out of the pot to live on it themselves. Okay, that's how the priests lived. 
they lived off the tithes of the people. Julie and I get a salary from the tithes of this church. It works the same way today. However, when people in the regular congregation didn't tithe, what happened in those days was that their crops would fail, cattle would die, things, they simply wouldn't prosper. Because again, all a tithe was, and what this goes on to say in Numbers, God says, when you offer just a tenth, the tithe simply means a tenth, he said, I will accept it as if it is your entire wine press or your entire threshing floor. Now that blew my mind. That's one of the things I read out of Garlington's article I'd never seen before. God says, just your tithe. I will accept your tithe as if you offered everything. Everything. My whole life, my whole being. And that struck me because then I understand why it hurt, as it were, God's heart so much when some of us, we don't even understand the importance of the tithe. Because again, he, 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 he asks for 10%. But the point, I don't want, we're not teaching on tithing. So everybody, don't panic. We're not going to take a second offering. Hallelujah. What God said in this, that the Levites, if they didn't tithe off of the tithe, there wasn't, they had no crops to lose. They had no cattle to lose. You know what happens to a priest if they don't tithe off the tithe? It said, you shall be cut off from the house of Israel. You'll die. This is why there's a bigger responsibility when you stand behind these things than there is when you sit out there. But nevertheless, the whole thing is, the thing that struck me is that just offering up, that God sees that as a whole. Actually, go ahead and, John, can you put up that one PowerPoint thing where it says that synecdoche, synecdoche that, that's, that point? Can you put up that real quick? And I'll try to really hurry. We're doing all right. I didn't even know how to pronounce this. I had to look it up, synecdoche. And actually, John, put up the one before that. Let me, I, let me go ahead and read the thing before it just real quickly. Can you put up, yeah, just the, the one before that. Sorry. This is, again, straight from Garlington's book. He said, I believe David's courage to make this request of the Lord comes from an understanding of the law and knowledge that in other cases, Jehovah has made similar rulings. In other words, he understood that the substitution he saw something, he thinks, because David would have seen it in other parts of the law. One clear example of this principle about God accepting a substitute is the Lord's action concerning the tithe of the Levites found in Numbers 18, 25 through 30. God commanded Moses to instruct the Levites that a tenth of the tithe presented to him will count an equal value and volume in his sight as though they gave the fullness of the wine press. Next one. This is the verse, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. Now go to the next one. A synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a part represents the whole. One of the real mysteries of worship is expressed in the question, what is the whole behind the earthly symbols or the parts of worship? In other words, what's really happening behind us when we just lift our hands? It's a mystery. We don't know how much is happening there, but something much bigger is happening there than what we're doing here. 
And this is what you have to begin to be taught about and study about and learn about so that you will be more able to enter into true spiritual worship. You'll begin to see, I don't know what's happening right now when I do this, but I've read your word and you're not a man that you should lie. And I know that there's something stronger happening there because of what I'm doing here. And it affects every aspect of your life. God begins to flow back in your life. But anyhow, he said, one of the real mysteries of worship is the question the question, what is the whole behind the earthly symbols or the parts of worship? The parts are the thing visible to us in our dimension and our dimension that are immeasurably powerful in the invisible and the eternal dimension. God wants his people to know that their obedience in bringing him their tithe, whatever it may be, would be as though it was equal in his sight to the full volume of grain on the threshing floor from which it originated. And whatever way God regarded the fullness of the wine press, he says, I will allocate to your offering the same value. Now that's heavier than you think. But it's just this whole idea that God receives something of synecdoche, <laughs> that he receives a part as if it were a whole. This is a Yet again, a picture of the immeasurable kindness and goodness and bigness of our God. He knows we're human, we're frail vessels. So he only asks this of us. We lift our hands, uh, clapping. He only asks this of us, or our giving. But what we're trying to get to here is God help us to begin to see that something far more powerful does happen in the realm of the unseen when we're faithful in the realm of the seen. In Jesus' name, I just pray we really somehow catch that. Everything means something in Scripture. Remember clapping. I'll finish with this. Everybody say, praise God, he's finishing. Especially visitors, I know. Eric's over there crying. He's saying, why is it taking so long? Oh, my God. Friends are going to get angry, throw stuff. There won't be any meat left on the cheeseburger pan. I often shared the first time I found out about clapping, when I was reading about clapping. You know, we just clap sometimes. We don't know where clapping comes from. Almost all the figures, the things that we do today, even when we're unsaved, not in church, we just do it. We have no idea that they have at their origin the scriptures. Saints, we have, well, you know what they say, there's a friend sticks closer than a brother. People don't realize that's a scripture. They have no idea when people say, oh, well, you know what they say, blood is thicker than thin water. They don't understand that's a verse. They don't understand all this stuff comes from the Bible. But clapping, what clapping was, when armies would go out to war, they had walled cities in those days. And when a caravan, an army would go out to war, an army always went, they had people in the front that were banner carriers. They were like on a horse or a camel, had these huge poles of big wide banners. And the banners would have signals on them. That would declare whether what had happened, whether there was victory, whether there had been some defeat, whether they'd lost a lot of people. Banners, they were like signals. People still use them in other parts of the world today. Well, as they were coming, the guy, there was always a watchman on the wall. We know that as people that go to church. There were watchmen on walls. And watchmen would be looking. You know, the whole city's here, but they'd be up on this wall. And they'd see them. And when they saw the first guy coming, the watchman would do this. He'd go... And he'd clap. I can't. The watchman would clap like that. And then the guy out there, he would wait to see if he would. Because what that meant 
is an army came back. What that meant, if he did this, it meant the enemy had been smitten. The enemy had been conquered. And so this guy would go up there and he'd go, like a question, and the guy would go back and go, and then the guy would do it again, go, and the guy would second it again. Then the guy on the wall would turn back into the city and go, and then everybody in the city would start going, and they start clapping because it meant the enemies had been destroyed. Hallelujah. Well, but you know, today we do our, you know what I mean? We, but the point is, when you know what something means, it just carries more weight. You, I started clapping different then. I started going, you know what? Bless God, I do have the victory. I mean, really. And Father, I don't feel like it. David never felt like it. Nobody else felt like it. <clears throat> but I'm going to worship you because that's the right thing to do. Here is my heart. I may not have any money this week to put in the offering. I may not have any time. I don't know what. But here is my heart. Here I am. Oh, God. So that's the end. <gasps> oh.